everybody, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm going to be talking to you guys about the tragic accident that befell rock band Leonard Skinner in the 70s. I think this story is very well known amongst, I think, everybody, or at least those that are in the classic rock sphere and community. I think we all kind of know about it, but What led up to that event is pretty interesting to me, but then also diving deep into how the plane that they were traveling on while they were on tour crashed and what happened to the band after. So without further ado, let me tell you the story of Leonard Skinner. Leonard Skinner was a rock band famous for their songs like Freebird, Sweet Home Alabama, Simple Man, and many more. Their southern roots and country twang paired alongside blues riffs catapulted them into stardom. The band was formed in the swamplands of Jacksonville, Florida in 1964 when they were originally named as My Backyard. Ronnie Van Zant was the singer, Gary Rossington was the guitarist, Alan Collins was also on guitar, Larry Johnstrom was on bass, and Bob Burns was on drums. It all started a year prior in 1963 when Alan received his very first guitar. With his newfound love of playing guitar, he joined a band called The Mods. A year later, on the other side of Jacksonville, a young Ronnie Van Zant also joined a local band named The Squires. As fate would have it, at a local Battle of the Bands contest, the Squires, who had now changed their name to Us, and the Mods played against each other. Alan's band, the Mods, won the competition. Even though Ronnie's band lost against Alan's, they still ended up pairing together, and this is where they would meet for the very first time. Ronnie would end up becoming disenfranchised and left the band Us shortly after the loss to the Mods. What were the other future members of Leonard Skinner doing at this time, you ask? Well, in the same year of 1964, Larry, Bob, and Gary joined forces to make their own band as a trio called Me, You, and Him. So at this point in time, all members of Leonard Skinner were in other bands except for Ronnie, who was free-floating on his own after leaving us. But fate would intervene again. In the late summer of 1964, Ronnie, Gary, and Bob had met each other while playing on rival baseball teams. It sounds like the universe was dead set on these guys being rivals and in competition with each other from the beginning. What with Ronnie's band having lost to Allen's at the Battle of the Bands contest, and now Ronnie was on rival baseball teams. Pretty crazy situation right there. But while they might have been rivals, the three guys became fast friends. Ronnie, Gary, and Bob would all jam together one afternoon after Bob was injured by a ball that Ronnie had accidentally thrown at him. They set up their instruments in the carport of Bob's parents' house, and they played the Rolling Stones song, Time is on My Side. They soon discovered that they played together really well, and without hesitation, they decided to form a band right then and there. The band that would become Leonard Skinnerd. History was playing out exactly as it needed to. Larry would soon join the three fellas due to his association with the band Me, You, and Him with Bob and Gary. Alan was the missing puzzle piece that the band needed to feel complete, but he was a perfect fit due to his tight connections with all of the guys. So one day, they all approached Alan and asked him to join the band. And two weeks later, he said yes. 
But the problem therein arose. What were they going to name themselves? They first landed on my backyard, but not being too pleased with that initially, they tried on a couple of different hats under such names like Conquer the Worm, the Noble Five, and the 1%. They kind of liked the 1% and they stayed as that starting in 1968. By the end of the 60s, with the 70s fast approaching, Ronnie thought that they needed a fresh glow up with a different name. They were getting tired of the hecklers that would often taunt them about the band name, saying that they had, quote, 1% talent. Well, Bob suggested the infamous name of Leonard Skinner, which was a reference to a character named Leonard Skinner in the Almond Sherman song, Hello Mudda, Hello Fada. The song was a jesting tribute to gym teacher Leonard Skinner at the Robert E. Lee High School. But the person in question that was named in this song that would then be the inspiration to the band name Leonard Skinner. Leonard Skinner was known for his strict rules against boys having long hair. This was, after all, a time where the cropped cuts of the 50s and early 60s were morphing into the long hair that was made popular by bands like the Beatles by 1964. Towards the end of the 60s, the hippie counterculture to the Vietnam War was such that men were growing out their hair, not only as a form of rebellion and protest, but because it was also quite fashionable. Gary had previously dropped out of school due to being fed up about the length of his hair. And with the name Leonard Skinner chosen, the last thing to do was change up the unique spelling for the band where they would change out the vowels for Y's. And by 1970, they were officially known as Leonard Skinner. History has arrived. By the turn of the decade, the band had become one of the top acts out of Jacksonville, headlining local concerts and opening for many national bands. They continued to perform throughout the South in the early 70s, slowly adopting and morphing the way in which they played as they started to develop a more hard-driving blues rock image. Leonard Skinner is known for having cultivated a specific style of rock music that blended country, blues, and British rock that would forever be known thereafter as Southern rock, the sort of umbrella arcing point to classic rock. And then you have Southern rock as like an extension of that. Bands like Credence, Clearwater, Revival were in very good company with Leonard Skinner in this newly adopted form of Southern rock that was becoming ever popular in the 70s. And as rock acts like Kiss and ACDC and Black Sabbath were coming into the fold of American entertainment, Leonard Skinner were making a very unique, quite literal, name for themselves. On August 13th, 1973, the band would release their debut album titled Leonard Skinner. It fared excellently, selling over one million copies. Their smash hit single Freebird received national airplay and reached number 19 on the Billboard Hot 100. By 1974, their second album called Second Helping catapulted them from fame and into the stratosphere of stardom with their ever popular single Sweet Home Alabama, which is probably their most popular song. And it's a classic American anthem, as American as Apple Pie and as American as Bruce Springsteen himself. The song was a direct response to a Neil Young song called Southern Man. And then he also had a B-side to that called Alabama. So Southern Man, 
and then Sweet Home Alabama. Neil Young's Southern Man was a political piece targeting Southern racism in America and propping up the ongoing battle of the civil rights movement. Sweet Home Alabama mentions Neil Young by name and mentions his song directly with lyrics that say, I heard Mr. Young sing about her. I heard old Neil put her down. I hope Neil Young will remember. A Southern man don't need him around anyhow. Ronnie said of Neil Young's Southern Man song, we thought Neil was shooting all the ducks in order to kill one or two. A few years later, Neil Young would remark that he was proud to have his name in Sweet Home Alabama and that Leonard Skinner played it like they meant it. Well, there was actually never any bad blood between the rock giants at all, and in fact, they remained very good friends. It was just a simple matter of Neil Young had this song talking about directly Southern racism and... Leonard Skinner being deep in the underbelly of the South and around the Bible Belt area at that time, they were very familiar with what was happening. I think you had to be. I think there was no way for you to be blind to what was going on at this time. They just kind of did a little bit of a call to Neil Young and said, well, we don't need you around anyhow. But that was just like a little funny jab. They weren't rivals at all. And they remained very good friends until this very day. The Southern Anthem of Sweet Home Alabama reached number eight on the billboard in August of 1974. So by all accounts, Leonard Skinner were riding high on their monumental success. The 70s were looking very good for them and they in turn did keep them very well in good company until drummer Bob Burns would leave the band after he suffered a mental breakdown during the band's European tour for their second album in 1975. He went to a hospital back in Jacksonville where he was diagnosed officially with bipolar disorder. Seemingly, the life on the road as one of the most popular rock bands of the time seemed to be a bit too much for Bob to handle. And he was replaced by former U.S. Marine Artemis Pyle. With a name like that, how can you really go wrong? Full speed ahead into their next album with Artemis in tow, which was called Nothing Fancy, was recorded in only 17 days. The album seemed to mark a turning point for the band as it was deemed simply mediocre when it came to the sales. Well, not only did their third album not fare well, but Alan and Gary both had very serious car accidents over the Labor Day weekend of 1976. In particular, Gary's accident, which happened because he crashed his car into an oak tree while not only drunk, but also stoned on quaaludes, inspired the future single, That Smell. And it was a song laid out to be a cautionary tale about drug abuse that some of the members of the band fell victim to. Ronnie was also considered to be the other subject member of this cautionary song about addiction. With the birth of his daughter, Melody, in 1976, he was trying to make a serious, concerted effort into getting sober and staying away from the booze and from the drugs that became almost like their image. People knew them to be the guys with the really long hair that drank all the time and that did drugs always, but he was really trying to stay clean and sober for his daughter. Well, unfortunately, the last album that would feature Pioneer member Ronnie Van Zant was the 1977 album Street Survivors, which is, I think, a very aptly named album considering what happened. Guitarist Steve Gaines had also joined the band at this time, and his talents would be showcased on this album for the very first time. 
Ronnie made it known that he marveled Steve's amazing guitar talents. He made the claim that the band would all be in his shadow one day, and that day would unfortunately soon come for him directly, as well as a couple of others. Now, this might be a little graphic, so if you are sensitive to subject matters that talk about death and violence and such, then I would suggest perhaps turning off the podcast and listening to any of the other ones that I have that are more more or less less like this. The third album, Street Survivors, released on October 17th, 1977. Just a mere three eerie days before the tragic plane accident in question would permanently change Leonard Skinnerd forever and almost put a weird curse on the band because of the stuff that happened to the band members after the plane crash. Almost like a Kennedy curse, if you will. Very strange. While on tour promoting the album, on October 19th, the band was playing a show at the Greenville Memorial Auditorium in South Carolina. The following day, on the 20th, the band would board a Convair CV-240 plane to take them from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where they were going to perform at Louisiana State University. Unfortunately, the plane ran out of fuel near the end of the flight. And once they realized that the plane didn't have enough fuel, the pilots attempted to navigate to Macomb Airport, but soon realized that the plane would not make it in time to its emergency landing. In a last-ditch effort, they attempted this emergency landing in an open field in Amity County, Mississippi, and I hope I said that correctly. However, tragedy struck at approximately 6.42 p.m. when the plane skimmed roughly 100 yards along the top of the tree line before eventually smashing into a large tree and splitting the plane into pieces near Gillsburg, Mississippi. That is the long and short of it, but what are the details? What happened inside the plane? Did people know what was going on? What happened here? Well, let me go deeper for you. Witnesses that were survivors of this plane crashed recalled that Ronnie had been up most of the previous night and was lying on the floor of the plane with a pillow in order to get some sleep. Other passengers passed the time by playing cards. Some of them slept as well. But at some point during the flight, the passengers had become aware that something was wrong. Newfound drummer Artemis Pyle recalled entering the flight deck to see what was going on and being told by the terrified captain to go back and strap himself in. The band knew that their situation was a dire one, and with nothing that they could do, the horror of their predicament sat heavy on their conscience so much that the band simply sat in silence while some of them were praying for survival. Gary recalled hearing what sounded like hundreds of baseball bats hitting the plane's fuselage, and it began striking trees as it was going down. The sound got louder and louder until Gary was knocked unconscious when the plane eventually hit the ground. He awoke sometime later on the ground with the plane's door on top of him. It's kind of a miracle he survived with that alone, being crushed by the plane's door. Keyboard player Billy Powell's nose was nearly torn off in the crash, as he suffered severe facial cuts and deep lacerations to his right leg. Decades later, he would give an account to the flight's final moments, stating that Ronnie, 
who was not wearing a seatbelt, was thrown violently from his seat and died immediately when his head hit a tree as the plane broke apart. Although some members have called into question his testimony as to what happened, Ronnie's widow, Judy Van Zant posted the autopsy report on the band's website in early 1998, confirming some parts of Billy's account of the story. So we can basically ascertain that, yes, that is what happened. Seeing as he was not strapped in or he was not even sitting in the plane seats, he was literally laying down in the aisle. And of course, there was nothing that could be done at that point there. Artemis suffered broken ribs but managed to leave the crash site and notify a local in the area. Unfortunately, there were many casualties to this plane crash and those are Ronnie, Steve Gaines, backup singer Cassie Gaines, who was Steve's sister, assistant road manager Dean Kilpatrick, the captain, whose name is Captain McCreary, and the first officer, whose name is William Gray. Those that did survive did so because they were mostly seated at the back of the plane, so they had enough time to not have that immediate impact when the plane came crashing down into the tree. Those that made it through the crash were transported to different hospitals for their treatment, and they were not initially aware that Ronnie and others had perished in the crash. One truly tragic piece to the story was Cassie Gaines. Again, sister to Steve. Cassie was touring with the band and she had a notorious fear of flying. But Ronnie convinced her to get on the plane with them. Of course, that would end up being a fateful error that would be the result of her death, but one that neither of them could have ever predicted or seen coming. In a strange way, the plane crash became the scary premonition of another backup singer for Leonard Skinner. Her name is Jojo Billingsley. She was not on the plane because she was in the hospital dealing with health issues due to her drug abuse. And when she got better, she had planned on joining the band for their show in Little Rock, Arkansas on October 23rd. But she had a terrible dream of a plane crash. Fearing the worst, she warned Alan on the phone to not continue to use the plane. But of course, with this warning, they got on board the plane regardless seemingly not afraid for their lives or knowing the consequences of the actions that would lead to their fates. And it reminds me a lot of the day the music died. Buddy Holly, his wife, had also a very similar eerie premonition of sorts happen around the day or two or so before Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens were to die on that fateful day. She had a fear that he would die on a plane, and Buddy knew that. So the fact that he omitted telling his wife that he was going to board a plane instead of continuing to take the broken-down tour bus that was transporting these three men was a choice that he made because he didn't want to upset her. It honestly is very eerie to hear that this happened in this instance as well. And Jojo was the one that had this dream and she tried to warn them. When you hear something like that, I think maybe one's first instinct is maybe to think you're crazy or it's just a dream. You know, you don't want to make a big deal out of something that you probably think is not going to happen. They got on the plane and they ventured forth and what happened, happened. So it was later discovered 
that the plane in question had been inspected by members of Aerosmith's flight crew for possible use in Aerosmith's Draw the Line tour, Aerosmith's flight crew felt that neither the plane itself nor the crew were up to snuff either. Aerosmith's assistant chief of flight operations, Zunk Bunker, witnessed Captain McCreary and First Officer William Gray, the same two men in question that were flying this conveyor for Leonard Skinner. He saw these two men sharing a bottle of Jack Daniels while he and his father inspected the plane. So, very odd. Very, very, very strange. Incredibly odd. Very strange. The Convair aircraft was not their first choice. And in fact, Leonard Skinner wanted nothing more to do with this plane. Artemis shared that the band initially, quote, were flying in a plane that looked like it belonged to the Clampett family, end quote. Seeing as they were one of the top-billed acts of the time, they thought they deserved an upgrade from this rickety plane. And they had made plans on getting a much better Learjet after arriving in Baton Rouge to replace this Convair. And all of the band members had agreed that the rickety 30-year-old Convair was out of sight, and that would end up being the last time that they would end up using this convoy. After the horrific plane crash, rescuers had to cross a 20-foot-wide, waist-deep creek and dig through an overgrown forest, meanwhile digging out rescue vehicles that got stuck in the mud in order to get to the plane crash site. Locals worked with rescue officials and drove victims to the hospital in the back of pickup trucks. One local resident recalled, I found someone on the ground alive. When I walked to the other side of the plane, I tripped on another person. Meanwhile, another resident commended the actions of all of those who helped and highlighted that some of them were out on that highway directing traffic. Some of them went home and got tractors. My wife was home on a CB radio. I'm relaying messages on CB to her 10 miles away. So the locals really stepped in to really help the rescue workers as best they could to tend to the band members. And they really did a stand-up job. After this fatal incident, the National Transportation Safety Board removed, inspected, and tested the right engine and discovered that no mechanical or electrical discrepancies were found. The inspection also determined that all of the fuel cross-fed and fuel dump valves were in the closed position. So, meaning nothing was wrong with the fuel. It just ran out of fuel. So, nothing technically there was wrong. Billy Powell and others spoke of seeing flames shooting out of the plane's right engine during a flight just days before the crash. Billy would recant that the fuel gauge in the plane was known to malfunction and the pilots had neglected to check the tanks manually before taking off. Toxicology reports from both pilots' autopsies found no traces of alcohol or other drugs. So, what was deemed as the reason for this plane crash? Well, the National Transportation Safety Board concluded that the crew's inattention to fuel supply was ultimately what caused this deadly accident. But what do you think? Seemingly enough, the toxicology reports are pretty solid that they're 
was no traces of substances in their bodies. One could probably suggest, though, that the pilot and the first mate were very inept to handle flying this plane and actually handle being in their positions anyway. Because if they had a known history of being neglectful and not checking properly, because you have a long list of in-flight checks before you have to just take off on a plane, even if it's a private plane, you still have to go through all the checks and balances and make sure that everything is good to go before you just take off on a plane. So it seems to me that either these two pilots were very inept at their job. Maybe they hadn't been at their position for long, or if they were in their jobs for a long period of time, maybe they got lazy and they just didn't seem to care. And perhaps they thought, oh, well, I'm flying Leonard Skinnerd, and I almost flew for Aerosmith. What could really go wrong? So I think they just got the best of maybe their ego, probably. And I would agree, probably, yes, that the inattention they had to how much fuel they had, for sure, costed everyone that died their lives unnecessarily because that's something that you do in step one of the checks and balances list, right? Seemingly enough, I think I agree that the crew just did not care or they didn't pay attention because I think if they did care, they would have gotten more fuel. But regardless, the plane itself too was not up to snuff either. So I think it was a combination of both. I think the plane just was not fit to continue flying and also the crew was just not right either. So unfortunately, those two things led to the deaths of Ronnie Van Zant and Steve Gaines, his sister, the pilot and co-pilot himself, and um, the assistant road manager as well. Following the plane crash, their third album, Street Survivors, became the band's second platinum album and reached number five on the U.S. album chart. The single, What's Your Name, reached number 13 on the single airplay chart in 1978. And that makes sense, seemingly because when you hear of a massive story that members of a hugely popular band, Leonard Skinner, died, and they had an album that just released a couple of days prior to this event, naturally the fans are going to want to buy this album. It's not a posthumous album, but eagerly enough, I think it could be kind of considered one now at this point because that's the last album that had Ronnie Van Zandt on it and Steve Gaines on it. So an eerie, weird situation, but just from like a, a selling standpoint, that definitely checks out. Leonard Skinner disbanded after the tragedy, reuniting only on one occasion to perform an instrumental version of Freebird at Charlie Daniels Volunteer Jam in January of 1979. The Rossington Collins Band was formed with members of Leonard Skinner, and they released two albums in 1980 and 81, respectively. Allen, however, was not faring well after the disbandment of Leonard Skinner and the death of his bandmates. After having suffered the loss of his wife after she died while miscarrying their third child, Alan attempted to get back up on his feet and he formed the Alan Collins Band in 1983 after the Rossington Collins Band had broken up. So it was kind of a weird almost formation for a second time of Leonard Skinner for the most part. They released one studio album titled Here, There, and Back, but tragedy would strike the members 
of Leonard Skinner once again, when on January 29, 1986, Allen crashed his Ford Thunderbird into a ditch near his home in Jacksonville, which resulted in the awful death of his then-girlfriend, Deborah Jean Watts. And not only that, but this very severe car accident left Allen permanently paralyzed from the chest down. It's like these guys just can't get a break, which is why I'm saying it's almost like a very eerie Leonard Skinner band curse, similar akin to like a Kennedy curse type situation, you know, where one tragedy strikes or something happens in the past and then it's just karma that keeps coming through and it's just very, very odd. In 1987, Leonard Skinner reunited for a full-scale tour with five major members of the pre-crash band. While on this tour, they had somehow found a way for Alan to have some kind of role within the dynamic of the group, seeing as he could no longer play any instruments due to him being paralyzed from the chest down. So they used his story as almost like a means to reach the hearts of the crowd before a show. Predominantly, he would come out on stage before the song That Smell, and he would be wheeled out on stage, and he would share the story of what happened to him. So... It's almost, again, major cautionary tale. Unfortunately, though, for Alan, his time would come to a very sad end when he succumbed to pneumonia that he acquired in 1989, and he passed away on January 23rd, 1990. He was only 37 years old. So he got into his accident when he was roughly 33, and he died when he was 37. I think that's just so tragic. He was so so young. After a few years in the 90s here, some of the members decided to continue on playing as Leonard Skinner once they released a double live album of that first reunion tour from 1987. This would end up causing massive legal problems for the survivors. Judy Van Zandt and Teresa Gaines, who were the widows of Ronnie and Steve respectively, sued Leonard Skinner for violating an agreement that was made shortly after the plane crash, stating that they would not exploit the Leonard Skinner name for profit. As part of the settlement, Judy and Teresa collected nearly 30% of the band's touring revenues. This 30% represented the shares that their husbands would have earned had they lived. And the women also held a proviso requiring Leonard Skinner to include Gary and at least two of the other four surviving members from the pre-crash era in any future tours or music endeavors, which I think is a very fair thing to suggest. Following the making of this rule, the band would have been forced to retire in 2001, but they have still continued to tour for another two decades, and I'm pretty positive they might still be going to this very day. So that, in a nutshell, is the story of the Leonard Skinner crash and what befell them after, and their meteoric rise to fame, because it's very interesting to see how these guys from Jacksonville, Florida, all got together and they created absolute magic, and their songs are ever popular. They're played in very popular movies and TV shows today, and probably in advertisements everywhere. Everyone knows Sweet Home Alabama, Freebird, very famous, but maybe some people don't know of the plane crash, and so therefore I kind of wanted to dive deep onto this story. 
But thank you guys very much for listening. I hope that you guys learned something today that you hadn't known about before. Feel free to follow me on Instagram for the podcast. It's on the Mix Podcast. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, I have links to all of that down below in the description. Thank you very much. And I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys.